Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to have you with us. Hello to those of you joining us in our online campus. Uh, that's a great way to participate. And um, if you're in one of our parent viewing rooms, uh, that's a great uh, spot. If you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service, hello to everybody joining us in our cafe. And uh, welcome to Westbridge. We are uh, in week three of a series called Asking for a Friend. And before we jump into the question this week, I want to let you know that after this service, right down front, we're doing something called Five and Five. It's five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes or less. So here's, here's who should attend that. If you've been coming for any period of time and we haven't had the chance to connect face to face, come down five and five right after service. If you've been coming for uh, a couple of weeks and you want to learn more about the church and get a little, you know, find out how you can get connected here, you should come to five and five. Uh, if you have, if today's your first Sunday, you should definitely come to five and five, five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes. If you uh, have questions about the church that haven't been answered and we know each other well, but you're just like, I've just got some questions. I'm curious about how to get connected. Or you've been coming for a couple of years and haven't found a way, your spot yet uh, to get connected with other people. And uh, you should come to five and five. It's five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes or less. And uh, we did this last week. We're doing it this week. It's something that we're incorporating into every single week is five in five. And I'd love for you to join me right down front. Five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes or less. Okay. Now, uh, we're in week three of a series called Asking for a Friend. And asking for a friend is sort of this phrase in our culture that's kind of tongue in cheek. It's a way to say, hey, I want some information, but I'm a little embarrassed that I want this information. So it's kind of like, we both know that I want this information, but this is a phrase I can say that lets me off the hook. And sometimes in church world, there's some things that you want to ask maybe about faith or about God or about religion or about uh, sort of uh, church. And it's like, ah, but is it okay to ask those questions? And so we want to go through a lot of those questions. We've put actually in your dashboard on the Church Center app, uh, you can actually go in there and there's a place you can write in a question and hit submit. And whatever questions we don't get to during this series, uh, we'll continue to answer those even in subsequent weeks and months. And, and we'll put out videos on our social media apps and on our dashboard and uh, answer a lot of those questions. But we're getting through a lot of the big ones. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've asked, uh, how can I believe in the resurrection? How, how is that even a thing? And how is it possible to believe in that? Can you, how do you verify that? Uh, that's a big question for a lot of people. Uh, last week, we looked at this question, how do I even make sense of the Bible? We've got this huge collection of writings, uh, 40 different authors over 1,600 years across multiple continents. How do I even make sense of this? And so we walked through that last week. Now, today we're going to tackle another big question. And I'd encourage you, if you missed any of these talks, you can go back and check them out online. But a big question for so many people is, how could a loving God allow suffering? And maybe you've heard it asked, maybe you've asked that question yourself. Maybe you've heard that question asked multiple different times in multiple different ways. Oftentimes it gets uh, sort of verbalized like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's a big question for a lot of people. In fact, for a lot of people, it's a big hurdle to believing in God, to putting their trust in God, because it feels like if God is this powerful and good God, then why is it that there's still suffering in the world? And really, the question we're asking then is, what kind of a God are we really dealing with here? In the last year, I've been involved in or officiated several funerals. Uh, I, I, we've seen multiple mass shootings even in the last few months. We've all watched during the last year or so as one country has invaded another and caused countless amounts of damage and loss of life. I have friends who are suffering from diseases, who are sick. I've lost loved ones to diseases. And so if there's a loving God, then why did these things happen? 
It's a big question for a lot of us. And what really makes this an interesting question is if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you believe that God is all-powerful. And and if God's all-powerful, that means he can do anything he wants to do. He has all power. So it would seem he could take away the chronic pain if he wanted to. It would seem that he could prevent violence if he wanted to. He could take away my friend's cancer if he wanted to. He could have prevented the school shootings if he wanted to, which would seem to indicate he wants you to have the pain. He wants people to have cancer. He wants people to die early. He wants students gunned down in school. If he is all-powerful, then that seems like the logical conclusion that a lot of people arrive at. And if God is all-powerful, then it must be his will. If God is somehow the one controlling things, and since these things are happening, somehow God's making these things happen, it's part of his master plan, and we just happen to get caught in the crossfire. And if God is powerful... This must be all part of his grand design for the world, a part of his master plan. Not too long ago, I sat with a couple who struggled to get pregnant, and they were trying for years and trying different things, and finally they got pregnant, and shortly thereafter, they had a miscarriage. And and you wonder, why did those things happen? And when that happens, people say things like this. When you lose a loved one, people say things like this, and it's good intentions, but it's the worst possible thing to say. Well, you just have to trust God's will. Just trust God's plan. But then that creates this question. So this is God's will for me to lose my baby? And if so, why? And is it because God's trying to teach me some type of a lesson? And if he is, what is the lesson? Because if he's trying to teach me some kind of a lesson, at least he would be, he owes it to me to tell me what that lesson is. What is it that I'm supposed to learn? And if you believe it's God's will for you to experience pain so that you can somehow learn how to trust him, then it is understandable that people walk away from that version of God. If that's the version of God that you were handed, if that's the version of God you were told to believe in, I would walk away from that version of God too. I would. See, it gets even more uh, dicey because we also believe God is good. So not only is God all-powerful, but God is good, which stands to reason, okay, so it must be good that people experience chronic pain. It must be good that people get diseases and sicknesses and illnesses. It must be good that people die. It must be good that there are school shootings because everything God does is good. And if that's true, then all evil that happens in the world is ultimately a part of God's master plan that ultimately leads to good. In fact, if everything God does is good, then you have to say that if those things didn't happen, since it's a part of his master plan, it's going to ultimately lead to good. He's, he's plotting evil so that good will ultimately come of it. Then that means that all evil leads to good. And that if that evil didn't happen, there would be less good in the world. Every single bad thing that happens must be a part of God's plan. He's all powerful. So if he doesn't stop it, it must be his will. And if he's good, then every act of violence and every act of selfishness is somehow good. Every person who ever died in a concentration camp, every single baby who's ever died prematurely, every person who's gotten cancer, every person who ever drowned in a tsunami, every person who experiences hurt and loss of life and loss of relationship, it's all part of the master plan because God is powerful and God is good. And if those things didn't happen, the world would somehow be less good. It would be tragic if your pain went away. It would be tragic if one less kid were sold into slavery. It would be tragic if one less person died. It would be tragic if one less person died in an attack or died of a disease. And now you've got to ask the question, are you talking about God or the devil? Because if God, in any sense of the word, wills for evil to take place, then what do you need a devil for? 
If God's already controlling all of that, there's nothing left for the devil to do except to become the puppet on God's hand who gets blamed for all the bad things and just becomes the puppet that's the scapegoat that we can blame, but really is just doing everything God wants him to do. Good luck figuring that out. See, you can see why this question is so important. Why does a good God allow suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? And really, here's the question. Who is this God that we're dealing with? And then the real question we have to answer is this. Where did we get that picture of God? Who told us that's what God is like? Where did that picture of God come from? Is it possible? Is it possible that we have built up an image of God based on our own ideas, based on our own assumptions, based on our own expectations, uh, maybe based on something you were told as a kid, some kind of human construct that we were handed in our generation, based on what you hope to be true? But what if that version of God doesn't actually exist at all? Now, if current reality that you're experiencing lies in contrast to your view of God, you would be wise not to ignore current reality. Not to bury your head in the sand and just say, well, this isn't actually happening. Instead, you would be wise to ask the difficult but helpful question, who then is this God that we're dealing with? If he's not the God who makes sure that all the kids get home safely, then who is he? If he's not the God that answers every prayer that I pray the way that I want it prayed, like some kind of cosmic vending machine in the sky, right? Insert prayer, receive blessing. Then who is he? If he's not the God who opens up the heaven and allows food to drop to everybody who's starving in the world, then who is this God? Because when your view of God doesn't match up with reality, then it's possible that you've put your trust in a version of God that doesn't actually exist. And so today I want to help us wrestle through this. I want to help us understand this question of why bad things happen to good people. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning to the creation narrative. And here's what we discover in the creation story. God created humanity for loving community. It's what we were created for. And the scriptures remind us of this in this, in this opening narrative that we were created to exist in loving community with God and with one another. And regardless of how you view the creation narrative, the point isn't about how the world got created. The point is that God is the one who created it. And he created it so that human beings would flourish, that we would exist, that we would live in loving community with God and with other human beings. And here's what we discover in the creation narrative. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. This is the very first thing that we discover in the creation narrative. God creates the world. He looks at it. It's good. It's the way that he wanted it. And today, most people would agree that the world is still a beautiful and stunning place. The Swiss Alps, right? And, and the Caribbean and uh, Hawaii and Elk River. <laughs> amazing places. And when God created this earth, he had it just the way he wanted it. And it was just the way that we would want it. It was beautiful and pain-free and trouble-free and worry-free. And the scriptures communicate and we read in this creation narrative that from the very beginning, God is good and God is love and God is community. 
and that we were invited to share in God's goodness and to share in God's love and to share in God's community. So what happened? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? How did evil creep into the world? Why are there natural disasters? Why are there earthquakes and hurricanes and tsunamis? And why does nature, why doesn't nature cooperate and do what it was created to do? Why don't people do what they were created to do? When we were um, on vacation a couple of months ago, we, we met someone who was from Fort Myers Beach. And she said uh, they stayed in their house. Their house was right on Fort Myers Beach and the hurricane came and, and they were floating on the refrigerator and it got all the way up to the ceiling and they had to punch through their ceiling so that they could breathe. And she survived and she said, we lost everything. I will never step foot on Fort Myers Beach again. It's just too painful. Why is that? Why does that happen? How is it that your kids and my kids do not need to be taught how to be selfish? How is it that you and I don't need to be taught how to be selfish or to be taught that selfishness is something that I still struggle with but should probably cover up a little bit more as I get older? Why is it that that's just intuitive to us? How is it that we know that things are not as they should be? Where does that awareness come from? Kids are not supposed to die early. That's like universally accepted as human beings. We all have a, a pain inside of us when that happens. But why is that? Why is that so universal? People aren't supposed to attack other people and harm other people. The violence that you see in the world today, it grates on our very souls as human beings. But why? Why is that so intuitive? Waves are not supposed to attack people on the shore. The earth is not supposed to cause death. Why does that happen? And all of this are things that happen as a result of something that went sideways somewhere along the way. Here's what we discover in the creation narrative, that God gave humanity free will that he does not revoke. He doesn't revoke your free will. He doesn't revoke my free will, even when we use our free will to go against the things he's created. Now, has anybody ever had the pleasure of stepping on a Lego in the middle of the night? It's a great feeling. Just wakes you right up. And as we have uh, both boys and girls, and so um, most of my kids are older, but uh, I, I've had the, the just wonderful feeling of stepping on a Lego in the middle of the night, going to the restroom. But I've also uh, stepped on a baby doll. And um, my daughters used to have a baby doll that when you would squeeze it, it would say, I love you. <laughs> and when you're kind of groggy and going to use the restroom in the middle of the night, and you step on that, it'll freak you out a little bit. You might not make it to the restroom, I'm just saying. And, uh, but here's what I, I know, as a, as a dad, I've, uh, this happened to me, and I, and I, in the middle of the night, stepped on this doll, and it says, I love you, and you're just like, oh my goodness, that is just creepy. But I never once felt like that doll actually loved me, you know? Like, as many times as my daughter squeezed that doll, and and, you know, the doll professed its love for everyone. It's never very believable. And you know why? Because it's a pre-programmed response. It's a recording, right? It's a pre-programmed response. And you're never going to enter into a loving relationship with that thing. It's only ever going to do what it's programmed to do. Now, God didn't create us that way. God created us for loving community, which means if it's going to be love, it cannot be a pre-programmed response. It can't be that we have the ability to 
just only say, I love you back to God. We have to have the ability to reject God's love. Otherwise, it's not free will. It's not love at all. That's how the writers describe the relationship between God and people. In the creation narrative, here's what we discover. It says, then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So there's this provision, and then there's also a prohibition. There's a provision and there's a prohibition. Humanity cannot actually have free will unless humanity has the opportunity to choose against what God wants, to reject God's plan and to reject God's desires. Otherwise, there's not free will. It's just a pre-programmed response. If my only ability is to say yes to the things God wants, then I'm no better than a doll that has a pre-recorded I love you. The only way for me to actually believe is if someone has the ability to reject that love. Now, I realize that's not a very emotionally satisfying answer when it comes to the idea of evil in the world, but it does help us reconcile the evil that takes place in our world with a good and powerful God. When we ask why God allows things to happen or does he cause them to happen, it's actually the wrong question to ask. The question doesn't have anything to do with how good God is and doesn't have anything to do with how powerful God is. Those are the wrong questions. The question has everything to do with what type of a world did God choose to create? Think about it like this. Is God powerful enough to create a round triangle? So it's like, wait a second, hold on. No. <laughs> and here's why. It has nothing to do with how good God is and it has nothing to do with how powerful God is. It has everything to do with the nature of a triangle. By, by definition of what it is, it cannot at the same time be something else. It can't be round and be a triangle at the same time. Those two things are opposed to each other. They are opposites of one another. And so just by definition of one thing, it cannot at the exact same time be the other thing. So then you have to ask this question. Did God create a world based on love, rooted in and built on love? Or did God choose to create a world that is rooted, on, uh, rooted in and, and built on and based on love? God could create a world that's based on control and God controls everything that happens. God can, he's the puppet master. Everything that happens is exactly according to his plan and nothing bad would ever happen. But that means love doesn't exist. Love is gone. Because the only way for love to exist means you give up control. In order for love to exist, there has to be free will. In order for love to exist, there has to be the opportunity to reject love. And the scriptures tell us God chose to create a world that's based on love and trust. And in order for God to create a world where we exist in loving community, we have to have the ability to reject loving community without the fear that our free will will be revoked. God doesn't just give free will to people who choose loving community. He gives it to everyone. And God doesn't revoke the free will of those who choose evil. And it's not because he's powerless and it's not because he's not good. It's because of the kind of world that he chose to create. And I can choose to control my kids. I can exert control over my kids to a certain point, but that won't lead to a loving relationship. I can choose to engage them in a loving way, but honestly, to do that, I have to relinquish a lot of control. Those two things are opposed to each other. You can either have a relationship 
that is rooted in control or rooted in love. But you can't do both because they are opposed to one another. So the question we have to ask is, what kind of a world did God choose to create? And then here's what we discover. As we read through the creation narrative, we discover this. Sin always has consequences. It always does. See, sin started in the very beginning when humanity became convinced that God couldn't be trusted. So Adam and Eve decided God can't be trusted. And so we've got to pursue our own satisfaction. God, you've said we can be satisfied with this, but we're going to pursue our own thing because I'm not so sure that we can trust that you're going to fully satisfy. So we're going to acquire, we're going to pursue, we're going to consume, we're going to go after something for ourselves. Sin is ultimately about the consumption of something in order to please myself because I couldn't trust that God would do it. And every time, every time that we go down that path, every time that we seek and we pursue to consume our, something for ourselves instead of trusting God and trusting His way and trusting His timing, trusting Him to be the source of life that provides for us, it leads us to dark and violent places, not only as individuals, but as a society. What we discover in Jesus, and maybe you've never heard this before, and this is really important, sin doesn't make God angry. And maybe you've never heard that. And maybe for you, one of the reasons that you've kept God at arm's distance, one of the reasons you're just maybe on the fringe kind of exploring this thing is because you felt like, my sin makes God angry at me. Maybe somewhere along the way because of a church you grew up in or uh, somebody who kind of does what I do communicated that to you. But I want you to know, you never find that in Jesus. What you discover is this, your sin and my sin it doesn't make God angry. It breaks God's heart because sin enslaves us and sin hurts us and God is for us. And he loves you and me so much that when we experience the consequences of our own sin, it breaks his heart for us. It doesn't change how much he loves us. It doesn't make him angry at us. It breaks his heart for us in the same way that as a parent, my heart breaks when something happens to my kids. I'm not angry at them. I'm, I'm, I'm hurt with them and for them. See, God knows in every arena of our life where we do what we want instead of doing what he wants, it leaves us trapped and broken and it hurts us. And so every time that we use our free will to consume and satisfy ourselves, we become enslaved to the very things that we pursue. And it robs us of peace. And as long as humanity has chosen to pursue taken its free will and chosen to pursue consumption outside of what God has prescribed, it has led to war after war after war after war after war because we determined God couldn't be trusted to provide what we need for our happiness and our satisfaction. And, and Paul describes this dynamic. He looks back to the creation narrative when he's writing to people in the Roman Empire in the first century and he writes this. He says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam and Eve are the first man and woman in this creation narrative. And when Adam decided to sin, he decided God couldn't be trusted and I'm going to consume things for myself. It entered the whole world. Now we're all born into this. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. He's like, we can't escape this, guys. The world itself is broken because of sin. Now we're born into sin and yet every one of us choose to sin. All of us experience, Paul says, as a result, death. Now, that's not news to any of us, right? All of us are going to die. Not a, it's not a real cheery thought, but... Uh, I, and I believe in taking care of your body. But here's the deal. 
No matter how much you work out, no matter how healthy you are, at some point, we all are going to reach that point in our lives where we're going to die. Whether you sit on the couch all day watching reruns of Saved by the Bell or you run a marathon, you cannot beat death. Whether you uh, eat junk food all day or you live on bird seed and tree bark, you cannot escape death. Nobody can, except for Bob Barker, okay? That dude's going to live forever. I'm convinced. But do you know why the story of Adam and Eve is so compelling? Do you know why we love that story? Their story is our story. Their story is your story. Their story is my story. At some point, every single one of us have struggled with the exact same struggle that Adam and Eve had. They're given free will. And somewhere along the way, they decided, just like we do, we decide through our actions, through our choices, God, I want to trust you. I want to trust that you're going to provide. I want to trust that you're the source of it all. But here's something right here in front of me that I can grab for myself. And I think I'm going to try that. There must be a better way. And that sin started a war. It started a war in the world because it started a war in our own hearts. And we don't even need a Bible verse to tell us that something bad got mixed into the DNA of the world. That we are born selfish, that we are born thinking about ourselves. We know that and we see it evidenced in the violence and the selfishness and the hatred and bitterness and anger, the harshness of a broken world. And war is really the right word. The Apostle Paul would describe it this way. He says... Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Paul says there's a war raging. And between good and evil, between selfless love and selfishness, and that war that's raging in an unseen realm is raging inside of our own hearts as well. Every single one of us can experience this. Every one of us senses this tension and this struggle that we wrestle with. And Paul says it's a result of free will. And there's this struggle because in your free will, you want to trust God that he's the source, but also there's these things right in front of you that you want to reach on and grab for to satisfy you as well. But every time that you do that, instead of trusting God, it leads you down this path of darkness and selfishness. Ultimately, I'm going to hurt other people to get what I want because I got to take care of me. And you have the ability to do that. You have the free will to do that. And if you choose to do that, God does not revoke your free will. But sin has its consequences. You try to teach this to kids. So when my, especially when my boys are younger, uh, I remember Leighton, who's now 14, would tell him, don't run down the driveway too fast. Because here's what happens. And you've all seen this dynamic with a large-headed child. (laughs) My little bobblehead. What happens, what happens to kids when they get running down the driveway is that the top half of their body starts moving at a speed that's faster than the bottom half of their body can go. And they go like this, right? And they're running and pretty soon you see it and you're like, those legs are not going to keep up with that bobblehead. And, uh, And as much as their little legs want to, it's just like you can see it coming, right? And we've all seen that happen with with little kids. And so sure enough, go out there and like, don't run too fast on the driveway because you're going to get going faster than you can run and you're going to fall forward. You're going to skin your knees. Sure enough, goes out, running down the driveway, falls forward, skins his knees. Comes running in, you know, crying, bloody knees. And I just look at him and I go, dude, I tried to tell you, man. Should have learned your lesson. Now you know. Absolutely not. 
even though I could predict what was going to happen. He comes in crying bloody knees. I go, oh, man, I'm so sorry. And I pick him up and I hold him close to my chest and he slobbers all over my shirt. And, and, I, and I comfort him until he's done crying. And then I get first aid and, you know, put Band-Aids on his knees and Band-Aids make everything better. Now, what is it? Uh, th- there's no part of me that wills for him to fall down the driveway. There's no part of me as, a, as an imperfect earthly dad that wants his knees to be skinned. And there's no part of me that relishes in the fact that his knees are skinned up and that now hopefully he's learned some kind of lesson. There's no part of that. I want to I prevent that as much as possible. But when it happens, I'm not happy about it. I'm not thrilled about it. And I'm not going, you should have learned your lesson. But why is it that we view God that way? That oftentimes... God gives us free will to do the things we want to do. We pursue things. We, we deal with the consequences of those things. And then we go, God, why did you let that happen? And, and then not only that, we go, well, somehow God's behind the evil in the world. That, that's akin to believing that not only did I want my son to learn a lesson about skin knees, but when he wasn't looking, I went out there and I pushed him down so I could teach him a lesson. That's what we bring to God. And if we genuinely believe that that's what God is like, then we've got to ask the question, who is this God that we're dealing with? Because no part of me, there's no part of me that wills for that to happen or that wants that to happen. Bad things happen to good people because we live in a broken world that is being ravaged by a war between good and evil. That's the reality. And if God chose to step in and revoke the free will of anybody who chose evil and chose selfishness, none of us would have free will. There would be no one left. There's no longer a world where people can choose good and choose love and choose God. And so the question behind the question then becomes, well, then who is this God that we're dealing with? And the best way to answer that question is to look at Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus, here's what you understand. Jesus fully expresses God's opposition to evil. In Jesus, we discover what God is really like. In Jesus, we discovered the complete picture of who God is. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've got to get your picture of God from Jesus. Over and over and over and over and over, the scriptures tell us. Every New Testament author reminds us, if you wonder what God is like, look to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this, the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He says, you want to know what God's like? You look to the sun. He expresses who God is. In, uh, in um, Colossians, Paul, Paul writes this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. The scriptures, the writers of the scriptures affirm over and over and over, there are not a lot of images of what God is like. There is simply one. It's Jesus. If you ever wonder what God looks like, you look to Jesus. And Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the way to the Father. Which means don't go anywhere else to get your view of God other than Jesus. We have to lock that in. God looks like Jesus. Which is again why Paul would write this. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. In Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. In Christ, all the fullness of God in a human body. So lock this in. God looks like Jesus. In light of that conclusion, 
How many times do we see Jesus in any way wavering or being involved in child kidnappings or human trafficking? How many people did Jesus afflict with cancer, disease, sickness, illness? How many earthquakes did Jesus cause? How many tsunamis? How many nuclear meltdowns? How many murders or shootings or violence did he condone? How many wars was he in favor of? Was Jesus in any sense willing any of that to happen or somehow behind the scenes causing that to happen? No. You read the life of Jesus in four different accounts from eyewitnesses and from those who interviewed the eyewitnesses. And if Jesus is our picture of God, then he reveals a God who is clearly not on that side of things. He reveals a God that always, always, always stands in opposition to evil. Jesus reveals a God who's doing the opposite. That God that is revealed in Jesus is a God who always heals diseases. He doesn't cause them. He liberates captives. He never puts people into captivity. He comes to rejuvenate creation, not afflict creation. He, he comes that we might have life to the fullest. He says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life to the fullest degree possible. And in Jesus is found the clearest and fullest expression of who God is. If that's the picture of God that's revealed in Jesus, then the idea that evil that happens in the world is somehow a part of God's master plan must be wrong. We got that wrong somewhere. So is it possible? that even though God is all-powerful, he does not choose to be all-controlling. He doesn't have a master plan blueprint that everything fits into, and that when bad things happen to good people, because of simply the type of world he's chosen to create, is it possible that God is actually grieved every bit as much as we are? See, I have a nickname in our family. It's All-Powerful One. Yeah, now no one actually uses it. It's more of a self-ascribed nickname, but uh, <laughs> the truth is I do function that way, especially in the life of my eight-year-old. I can get him to do whatever I need him to do. I can force him to brush his teeth. I can force him to go to bed. I can force him to eat dinner. I can force him to get in the car when I want him to get in the car. I can do that. I have the size and position and authority. I can, I can use all of my might to fight him, to get him to do what I need him to do. I have all power in his life. Now, having said that, if I choose to exercise that, if I choose to exercise all of my control to always get him to do what I want him to do, all things will be as I want them to be. And I will erode relationship. And when he grows up, we probably won't have a very good relationship. In fact, even though I might possess the power and authority and, and position and I might be strong enough and big enough, if my number one goal is relationship, I leverage love and trust instead. And especially with, with all my kids, we've had this conversation for years as they've grown up and there's certain things as they get into certain uh, ages where you're like, man, here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. Here's the decision I want you to make. But ultimately, I'm going to leave it up to you. Well, Dad, why? Why can't I do this? Or why can't I do that? Well, here's why. And, and, and based on your age, I can't even explain why. So I, all I can do is leverage trust. And so I'd say things like this. We've had this conversation so many times. And, and especially with like preteens and teenagers, you get this just amazing like eye roll. It's just beautiful. It's like, it's more like a whole body thing, you know. 
I can't fully explain to you why, but do you trust me? Have I ever given you a reason not to trust me? Oh, no. Okay, then just, I can't even explain why. But the decision's up to you. But by the way, if you go down this path and make this decision, it's got consequences, good consequences. Can't fully explain to you. If you make this decision and go down this path, it's got negative consequences. Can't fully explain to you. But if you'll trust me, go this way. Just trust me. But the choice is yours. And I'll, and I'll help you work through the consequences either way. I could choose to just say, nope, I'm going to force you down this path. And in the short term, they'd go down that path and experience good consequences. And I'd have no relationship with them as they got older. Is it possible that the God who created you and loves you values relationship with you more than control over all things? If Jesus is our model of an all-powerful God, then we have to look at power differently because even though Jesus could have wielded his might, he chooses instead to wield his love. We read in the New Testament writers that Jesus could have, as he's being put to death, could have called down legions of angels and wiped everyone out. But instead of doing that, he allows himself to be put to death. Because is it possible that at the end of the day, love is actually a lot more powerful than control? Is it possible that that is the kind of world that God chose to create? And if God looks like Jesus, then it can't be possible that God is behind all the evil in the world. So it must be that humans and those in the unseen realm with free will have actually affected an outcome on the world. And that it's possible that maybe creation is not as black and white as maybe we once were taught. Was it all just chance then? Does any of it matter? Absolutely. Our life is a gift and what we do here and now really matters. We have the ability to choose love. We have the ability to choose forgiveness. We have the ability to choose reconciliation. We have the ability to choose an eternal perspective. And every time that we act on the side of good, we are a reflection of a good God in a broken world. What we do know is that the God that is revealed in Jesus, he lays down control to win the hearts of people. And we know that he stands in opposition to evil, that he is on our side. And I realize that's a complex and not very emotionally satisfying answer to that question. But that's why the Apostle Paul would eventually talk about what is to come. Here's what he says. Through Jesus, all things will be made new. One day, all of this is going to be restored. God will not stand by and let the war rage forever. God's being patient because he wants as many people as possible to choose love and to choose grace and to choose his forgiveness. But at some point, God will step in and God will restore all things. In fact, this is what Paul writes in Ephesians. He says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything on heaven and on earth. That at at one point, everything on heaven, everything on earth, it's going to all be integrated. It's going to all come together under the loving lordship of Jesus and all things will be as they should be. Will be as they should be. And until that time comes, does it mean that when we experience hardship, when we experience difficulty, does that mean that somehow God's behind it? Does that mean somehow... God doesn't love us? The Apostle Paul addresses that. He says, But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. 
Even creation is longing for this, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. In other words, it's a Costco sample. That's a foretaste, right? It's like, eh, we're giving you a little bit. We're hoping you're going to buy the whole bundle. And that's what we experienced. Jesus has already come. We've experienced forgiveness. We've experienced God's grace. We've experienced his mercy. We've experienced community. We have this foretaste of what things ultimately will be like. And yet we still wrestle because we're not there yet. We still have, we're in this weird in-between time, the already but not yet. Jesus has come. He's restored some things. He's restored our hearts. He, we're, he's making me more and more like Jesus, but I still cling to some of these old habits and these old sin patterns because I've got this foretaste of what things will be, but I'm not quite there yet. So we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. And so we hold on to that and we push in that direction. Until that time when everything in heaven and earth comes under the loving lordship of Jesus, we continue to live that out. We continue to move in that direction. And then in the meantime, here's what Paul writes. He says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us? If we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. So when I experience these things, I live in this in-between stage and I haven't, I've been adopted into God's family, but I haven't been given my, my new body yet. My knees still creak. When am I going to get that? I'm in this in-between, in but not yet. God's making me new. He's making me more and more like Jesus, but I still cling to the old ways. And, and even creation is groaning, going, when are we going to get there? And in the meantime, when I do experience suffering, when I do experience hardship, when I do experience disease, when I experience the loss of a loved one, does that mean God has left me? No. Paul says, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. And if you want to know what God is like, this is who you look to. It's why we pray. It's why we hope. It's why we reach out in love to our community. It's why we gather. It's why we learn and grow. It's why we live out the grace of God each and every moment of each and every day. Because one day, one day, Jesus will return and all things will be as they should be. So if your view of God, if you've wrestled with this, if your view of God is that every time something bad happens, it must be a part of God's plan. He must be teaching me a lesson. He must be trying to tell me something. Let me suggest that you change your view of God to look like Jesus. And when you do that, your problem might not be with God. Your problem might be with a world that is at odds with what God wants. But he is patiently exerting his power and he's not doing it through control and he's not doing it through might. He's doing it through self-sacrificial love. And you're invited to be a part of that community. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want you to know it is not something you behave your way into. It's an invitation that's been extended to every single one of us. The God of this world created you and he loves you and he invites you into that community and it doesn't mean you'll never experience hardship. It doesn't mean you'll never experience pain or loss, but that he will go through it with you and that one day all things will be as they should be and you can put your hope in that. And if you want to say yes to that invitation 
Just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I have said no to your way and pursued my own way, and it's caused brokenness between myself and you and myself and others. And I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Then help me to put my trust in you and to follow you and your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every one of us. It's so tempting for us sometimes to think when really difficult things happen and when we suffer, we want to shake our fist at the sky and say, God, where are you? And even though you can handle that, I pray that you would help us to see that you're with us, that you always stand in opposition to evil, that, that you show up in the person of Jesus. And what we find in Jesus is one who always stands in opposition to evil, who grieves when we grieve, celebrates when we celebrate, walks with us, and one day will ultimately make all things new. So I pray that you would fill us with hope as we move in that direction. And may our lives be a reflection of a good and loving God in a broken world. In Jesus' name, amen.